He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that gives us the good news that we cannot save ourselves, but you have provided salvation for us. It is not by anything that we have done. It's not by our works, our righteousness, our ritual. It's not by doing good or thinking good thoughts. It is by your grace through faith. You've given us everything, and all we have to do is believe it, to trust in you, and we have eternal life. Father, as we go through this passage today that is central to understanding this, help us to understand some new things about this to get a greater appreciation of the surpassing grace that has been given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and the core idea here is God's immeasurable or God's surpassing, the surpassing wealth of God's grace, the exceeding riches of his grace as it's translated in the New King James Version. In Ephesians 2.7, we read that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a significant verse because it brings to a conclusion part of this opening section. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is, is, is one section, but 1 through 7 is the, is the long sentence that is here, and it brings this to conclusion. And it, in, this, it tells us why God has done this, that he has a purpose and that he will bring that purpose to a conclusion. The first word in the Greek is the word hina, which introduces a purpose clause or sometimes a result clause. And when God is the one who is performing it, then we know that he will bring that to completion. Now, when he is speaking here, and he says, in the ages to come, shows the Uh, exceeding riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus, we have to understand he's not talking about uh, individuals. He's talking about us in Christ. He's talking about something corporate. 
This will become significant when we get to the 10th verse because you will often hear people say that God will bring to conclusion that which he has intended. And so therefore, if you are claimed to be a believer in Christ, then you will have good works and that will demonstrate that you are truly saved. And if you don't have those good works, then you probably aren't saved. That is comes under the title of Lordship Salvation today, but it's been part of a works-oriented gospel for, for many years. And a failure, part of the failure here in this passage is to distinguish the pronouns and to understand that Paul is talking about a, the corporate blessings that we have in Christ, and that's the focus here. It's what Christ it's what God has intended for the body of Christ, and therefore he will bring that to conclusion for the body of Christ. It is, he is not talking about individual salvation in this context. So we see that this purpose is expressing the purpose for the actions that God has taken in verses 4, 5, and 6. That's really the centerpiece of this sentence. It's one of those odd sentences that starts off with a dependent clause, a con- actually a concessive clause back in verse 1. And if you have a King James Version, it, would, it tried to resolve this by saying, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive. And it adds that phrase, usually in italics in the first verse, and borrows it from verse 5 in order to let it make a little more sense to an English reader. It's difficult when you start off with a dependent clause at the beginning of a long sentence because you have to uh, wait until verse 4 to understand who the subject is and what we're talking about. I always had trouble with this when I was taking German in high school, because in German, the verb goes at the end of the sentence. So you have to go all the way through the sentence before you find out where the action is. And when you're, if you're an English speaker, that seems like it's, it's delayed. Of course, Germans wouldn't think of it that way. But that's what makes it a little difficult here. And so in verse 4, we see the subject of this long sentence, and the subject is God and what God has done for us. And as we've studied so much over the last month or so, he's done three things, which we developed in detail. First, he made us alive together with Christ. Second, he raised us up together. And third, he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So these three things that he made us alive, he raised us, and he seated us in Christ are now given the uh, the purpose in verse 7. He did this for the purpose or in order that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he has done this in order to show something. So the next word that you find in the Greek text is this verb, endeknumi. And this is a verb that indicates more than what it seems on the surface. 
It is, uh, in the terms of a part of, part of speech, it's an aorist tense, which indicates it's a past action, but it has to be understood in the sense of the mood that it's associated with, a subjunctive mood, and the subjunctive mood has the idea of potentiality, except when it's in a what's a hina clause, which is what we have here, the purpose clause, that. And so that's the idiom or the way in which the Greek language expresses purpose or result. And I point these things out for, because we have many who listen online who know Greek and Hebrew and are pastors and study along in order to get information. It's fascinating. Next week we'll have our congregational meeting, and Bryce will give everybody a report and they've done a lot of uh, granular analytics on the website, and this information goes out all over the world, and truly there are all indications. We have over 2 million transcript downloads a year. That's in over 200 countries. That, And I, I believe that a lot of those, not all of them, but a lot of those are Bible teachers and pastors who know English and get this information because they're in countries where they don't have access to commentaries, they don't have access to the scholarly tools that we have access to here here in the U.S. And so it's important to give a little extra information sometimes. It may go by some of you, but that's okay. We all learn these things, that this is just expressing what God's purpose is that he might demonstrate this. But it's not just giving a show. It's not God's show and tell hour. Often this word in Degnumi is used in a legal context of presenting evidence. Now, when we hear that within the context of our understanding of God's plan and purposes for mankind, we understand that often to relate to the angelic conflict to the fact that when God, uh, when Satan rebelled against God, and God gave them grace, gave the angels grace and time to for them to decide whether they would follow Satan in his fall or whether they would remain loyal to God, that this initiated a rebellion and conflict in eternity past with the angels. And that we infer from a lot of the language that's in the Scripture that there must have been some sort of trial. Maybe not the kind of trial that you and I are used to, but there was some sort of trial, and we know this because in Matthew twenty-five forty-three, we're told that God pre- that the that the lake of fire was prepared for Satan and his angels. That's their condemnation. That's their punishment. So there would have been a time for them to decide whether they would be loyal to God or not. But they're not there yet, which indicates there has been some sort of delay. It is also inferred that that delay is the result of a challenge to God's goodness, to God's righteousness, something along the lines of, is it really fair to send your creatures to a lake of fire? It may be something even more detailed. Is it fair that on the basis of just a uh, these seemingly innocent sins, such as eating a piece of fruit, 
that God, you would send people to an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. This is often brought up by people who doubt the fact that there, that God in his love would send people to the lake of fire for all eternity. And that is because we have a very shallow view of sin. Most people do. But when we look at these sins, Satan's original sin that he wanted to be worshipped like God, uh, his arrogance, his hubris, and we look at the original sin of Adam, which is eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God, we must recognize that all the horrors that God's creatures experience are the result of those two decisions. All of the horrors in human history, the famines, the diseases, pestilence, the wars, the violence, the hatred, the anger, all of the horrible things that you can think of, the crime, the criminality, all of this is traced back to simply eating a piece of fruit in human history. So that uh, punishment of the nature of the lake of fire is completely compatible with the crime. And a lot of people just doubt that, but they have a very low view, uh, a very shallow view, let's say, of sin. And in the context of human history, there's evidence that that uh, in the scriptures that it's like a trial. In a trial, there's evidence, and the evidence is the ch- related to the challenge that how can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? This isn't very kind. This isn't very gracious. So in history, God is demonstrating his love, his grace, his goodness to creatures who don't deserve it. We often define grace as God's unmerited favor. And in many passages, that's adequate. But that's not adequate in Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2 starts off with the indictment of the human race that says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, so we're born spiritually dead, in which you once walked or lived your life according to the course of this world, according to Satan, the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the others. Grace in this passage isn't simply God's unmerited favor or his undeserved kindness. It is his unmerited favor and undeserved kindness to those who deserve eternal punishment to those who deserve God's wrath, to those who have rebelled against him. It expands our concept of grace from simply God doing something that we really didn't deserve to to doing something for us when we deserve the exact opposite. And so it's a much richer concept of grace in this particular passage. And so he is demonstrating his grace within this context of a challenge. And it goes far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. The passage goes on to say that the demonstration of his grace is for the ages to come. For the ages to come. 
Now, this also raises a question as to just exactly when is this. And so the word that is translated ages is a plural in the Greek. It is the word ion, which is in the lower left on the slide. And this refers to a plurality of ages, but it is not specific as to when that is. In other places in Ephesians, it talks about the present age. It talks about the future age. And here it is simply this phrase, ages to come. Uh, Some want to take this as eternity, but in light of its use elsewhere in Ephesians, it is talking about the ages. Now, we make a distinction between dispensations and ages. Dispensations are periods of time related to how God uh, manages or administers human history. And one of the aspects of identifying a dispensation is there's new revelation that comes from God. Part of that new revelation includes new responsibilities for the human race, new expectations for the human race, and are for a portion of the human race. And this is seen in these different dispensations earlier in the Old Testament related to the giving of covenants. So you have the original creation covenant that outlines God's, I mean, man's responsibilities in the Garden of Eden before there is sin. And part of that responsibility is not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. Once they eat from that fruit, there's new revelation given in Genesis 3 because the situation is changed. So God gives new information, new responsibilities, which would include sacrifices, and God's promise of future redemption given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that this would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. So then there is another problem because man is rebellious and the thoughts of his heart are evil continually according to Genesis 6 and there's an angelic uh, invasion to destroy the, uh, the, the DNA of the human race. The sons of God, which are angels, come down and take wives from men and create a hybrid race. And so the only ones who are saved are Noah and his children and their wives. So there are these eight people who survive through the ark, and immediately when they come off the ark, God gives new revelation. It's in the form of a covenant, and new information, new requirements, new responsibilities. And then again, there's failure at the Tower of Babel, and God gives new information, but this time to Abraham, and that he is going to carry out his promise to uh, defeat Satan and his purposes through the seed of the woman, but this descent will now go through Abraham and his seed, his descendants. And so you have the introduction now of a new dispensation, but this creates a new age. There is an age prior to that, the age of the Gentiles, because there's only, there, God is dealing with the entire human race. Now he's only going to deal with one portion of the human race, That is Abraham and his descendants. So from that point to the cross, you have the age of Israel. But there are two different periods of time here. There's the age of the patriarchs until the giving of the law. And then you have new revelation on Mount Sinai. And so you have that until the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ is new revelation, new pronouncement. 
that behold that uh, they're to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have the author offer of the kingdom. We're still in the age of Israel, but we're in the tail end dispensation, which ends with the cross. The next dispensation is also an age that is the current church age. We are living in the church age, which is also a dispensation. They run concurrently. So this letter, this epistle to the Ephesians, is written early in that church age. We, he didn't know it at the time. Paul expected the Lord to return during his lifetime, but that was some 1,900 years ago. We now know that when Paul wrote this, that it's at the very, very, very beginning of this age. So we, when it talks about the ages to come, the church age should be included in that. We are trophies of God's grace here and now. It also relates to the uh, next dispensation, which is really the tail end of the age of Israel and uh, the, God's time plan for Israel. That's the seven-year tribulation. And then it will go into the thousand-year millennium and then into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. And so throughout these future ages, we are trophies of God's grace because there is something unique and distinctive about church-age believers. It will not be true of tribulation believers, and it will not be true of millennial saints. They each have different privileges, different provisions, but we are distinct because of our position in Christ, that we have been made alive together in Christ. In the Old Testament, they were made alive. They were regenerate, but not in Christ. We are regenerate and made alive together in Christ. We are raised together and seated together in Christ as we studied over the last uh, couple of months in this. So this is distinctive. This makes us a very special people to God, distinct from Israel, distinct from tribulation saints, distinct from millennial saints, and we alone are those who are in Christ with these special privileges. So we are trophies of grace beyond any others who are saved and beneficiaries of God's grace. And this will go through the ages to come. We are on display. Another aspect of this historically that would have applied to the Ephesians because they understood this is that in the ancient world, a temple is a, was a place uh, where the wealth of the city was kept. This was where banks were. They were in the temple. There was a belief that the god or goddesses would protect uh, that wealth. And so here we also have the phrase wealth of God's grace, so that that relates to this idea of being put on display because another thing that would happen is if a uh, Caesar, if a king, if a ruler, a general uh, conquered an enemy, then the trophies that were taken from that conquest would then be housed like a museum in the local temple. So Ephesus had one of the most renowned uh, temples in the ancient world, the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. And so they would understand what this meant to take trophies and to put them on display in the temple. So God is putting us on display, as it were, in the heavenly temple 
for all of the ages to come. It is an, we are an object lesson of God's grace, of his goodness to those who do not deserve it at all. In fact, to those who deserve just, just the opposite. So in the ages to come that he might show the exceeding riches. And this is this word here in the top right, hyperbolo. We get the term hyperbolic from this, which uh, in English that word means to go uh, above and beyond telling what actually happened. It's somebody who exaggerates and uh, tells more of a situation and makes it sound much greater or grander than something else. Hyperbolo has that idea of exceeding something, surpassing, going beyond And what's interesting is this word is used two other times in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.19, talks about the exceeding greatness, the surpassing greatness of God's power. His power is his omnipotence. It is infinite. It is beyond our comprehension to understand it. It breaks all the all of the borders. It breaks all of the limitations. It is surpassing. It's beyond anything that we can imagine. In Ephesians 3.19, it applies to the love of Christ that is beyond any limitations or boundaries that, that we have. It is infinite. And so bracketed by those two passages, we see that in 2.7, it talks about the surpassing greatness of God's wealth toward us. The word that is translated uh, uh, riches here is one that we saw somewhat earlier in Ephesians uh, 1, I believe it was back in 1.7, and because it is in the singular, it should be translated as a singular. Wealth is a better term than riches, which implies, you know, multiple bank accounts or something of that nature. This is all coming from the the wealth of, of God from his uh, from all that he has, which is more than we can ever ever imagine. I keep saying that because at the end of this section at the, when we get down to the end of chapter three, what Paul prays is now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly he Our words fail him at that point to describe the infinite wealth of God. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Often I hear believers talk about the fact that when the judgment seat of Christ comes, I'm not sure I'm going to get very much. I may end up down in the ghetto or in the borderlands somewhere. If you're walking by the Lord, what we're going to see is far beyond anything that we expect, anything that we would anticipate. He wants to shower us with, with his grace and reward us abundantly, even though we think that maybe we didn't do so well. I was reading through James the other day, and I ran into a passage, and as many times as I have taught James and read through this passage, it struck me 
uh, anew that there was something here that I had not quite caught before. In James chapter 2, there is an example, the first example given, of hearing the word and not applying the word. Hearing and doing, famous pair of words in James. Uh, it really means listening to the word, learning the word, and doing is applying the word. And so there's a situation there where you have some wealthy people coming in, wearing all of their fine garments and their jewelry and everything, and uh, the ushers or others in the congregation will um, give favoritism to them and ignore those who don't have so much. And James' argument here is to call them to obedience. And in verse 12 he says, So speak and so do. In other words, speak and apply as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. That's the standard, is God's, God's word. We'll all be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Think about that. Judgment will be without mercy to those who have shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, if you're a growing believer and you're dealing with people in grace orientation and in mercy, then that's going to be the standard God uses when he provides rewards. But if you are one that has been very harsh and negative and you haven't grown any in your spiritual life and there is no evidence of that in the way you treat people, then that might be the standard by which you're uh, judged at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you are being evaluated and you think, oh, you know, I go to Bible class and I study and I try and I just try to walk with the Lord and I just don't think there are going to be very many rewards. If you're a person who is growing, God's grace will be more than abundant in your life. But if not, what 1 Corinthians 3 says is as a result of applying uh, God's principle of judgment, you just won't have any rewards. It's not that you're going to get negative things happen to you. You're just not going to receive the rewards, the rewards that you would have. And that all comes back to God. God desires to give us so much beyond anything that we can ask or think. And he asks so little of us just to trust him, just to walk with him, and that's it. So this is the idea here that in the ages to come, he wants to display us as evidences of the immeasurable wealth, the surpassing wealth of his grace. And then we come to a final, we have three final phrases, prepositional phrases, in his kindness toward us, and in Christ Jesus. The word kindness is an interesting word in terms of its etymology, background, and usage. The word is pronounced Christotes and is usually translated as kindness or goodness. The word, the Greek word, is found some 26 times in the Septuagint. But what's interesting is in the Septuagint, it always translates 
the same Hebrew word group, which is the word tov or tovah, some form of that, which is usually translated good. It's the word you run into at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God will perform certain acts of creation. For example, on day 1, he separates the light from the darkness, and he says it's good, tov. Some people bring a moral idea to that. There's no moral idea in good, at least at that point. For the second day, at the end of the day, God says it's good. Third day, it's good, all the way to the end, and then he says it's very good. The idea there is not that it is righteous. Some people will say, oh, Satan couldn't have fallen yet because, look, everything is good, and they infer morality there. The problem is you always have to pay attention to word usage to get your meanings. And the next use of the word tov, the word good, God has created Adam. He has not yet created the woman. And the reason God is going to create the woman is because he says it's not good, it's not tov for man to be alone. Now, if you're going to import morality, righteousness, into your meaning of good in Genesis 1, it has to be there in Genesis 2, and now you have a problem. Because now you're saying it's inherently unrighteous or immoral for a man to be alone. A better solution is that it is according to God's plan. So God has a blueprint And like any builder, he breaks it down into six stages. And at the end of stage one, he says, it's good, it's according to plan. The end of stage two, he says, it's good, it's according to plan. When he gets to the end of the sixth day and says, it is very good, he's saying it's all done, everything is according to plan. When he gets to Adam on the sixth day, he says, it's not according to plan for man to be alone. He had created all of the other creatures, and there was always a counterpart, male and female. So it wasn't according to his plan to just have a male. He was, his plan was to create a man and a woman, so he is saying it is not according to plan for him to be alone, and so he is going to make a helper, an aidser for him. And so this is the the idea of tov, it is according to plan something that is appropriate, and therefore it is good in that, in that sense. So the fact that krestotes in the Greek is the word tra- that translates tov and is the only word that's used to translate tov in the Old Testament tells us something. It tells us that this is, has this idea of something related to being appropriate and therefore appropriate to God. And so we could translate this in order that in the ages to come, he might put forth the evidence of the immeasurable wealth of his grace in his appropriate kindness. That means that he is giving all of the grace that is necessary to solve the problem, and it's over and above. It is appropriate. It is sufficient that the wealth of his grace in the appropriate kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His grace is appropriate to our circumstances, and it solves the problem. This brings us to two of our favorite verses for salvation, 
uh, in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are most beloved by believers because they emphasize the grace of God. And we can memorize them. I think I first memorized these verses when I was 9 or 10 years old. Uh, use them over and again, either as uh, sometimes as uh, as hammers and having discussions, shall we say, with uh, unbelievers or other believers who thought that works were necessary for salvation. I'm not sure I always used it with the appropriate attitude, but that's the point. It is this this profound statement of verse 9 stating the negatives, It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We have to understand what that phrase works means. Uh, In other places, and we'll see some of these passages, in other places, works refers to the works of the law. Now, you are probably unaware of this. Some of you are a little more knowledgeable, so maybe you heard of this. But back as early as the 1970s, I had no idea of this, In the 1970s, there developed a new scholarly trend called that was related to a new interpretation of the Apostle Paul. Some say that the people who developed this were people who uh, really desired to see Jewish people get saved, and so they restricted the meaning of the works of the law to certain rituals such as circumcision, obeying the feast days, and a couple of other things. By doing so, they were making it much more narrow than just moral works and doing good. So they were trying to open the door to some other way that unsaved Jews could be saved other than trusting, trusting in Jesus. So this new perspectives on Paul, as it was called, began to be espoused by various uh, scholars, one of whom was an Anglican bishop by the name of N.T. Wright, whose intellectual prowess is profound. His knowledge of many other uh, ancient languages other than the biblical languages is well known. His uh, knowledge of of uh, uh, Jewish literature, the Talmud, the Mishnah, these things are such that when you read them, he amasses such a load of evidence for his erroneous position that people are just overwhelmed with the details, and they are impressed with his intellect. And he has influenced other scholars, and this has become such an issue that Uh, Even the Evangelical Theological Society had an entire session in Atlanta about 10 years ago, or maybe a little longer, uh, which I went to just to try to get an understanding and handle on this. But it is heresy. We have had pastors from doctrinal churches who went out from us, but they were not of us, as John says. They have been seduced by the uh, intellectual vanity of N.T. Wright and others, and I was just reading the other day that N.T. Wright would be part of a huge movement called uh, Replacement Theology and has said many positive things uh, about the Palestinians. He's associated with those who are referred to now as as a Christian uh, Palestinianists instead of Christian Zionists. They are pro-Palestinian Arabs. And so this is, he has led others astray, those who were 
solid in their understanding of dispensations, their understanding of God's plan and purposes for Israel, the role of Israel, and they have led many people astray. There are people who listen to me. There are people who are in um, in this congregation who have relatives who have been deceived by some of these pastors who were deceived. So this may be something that's way over your head, that you say, well, that doesn't touch me, but you never know. This has become more and more popular among scholars in the last few years. So I'm just going to allude to some of those things as we go through this. But the concept of works here is not modified by the phrase of the law. And that's important. And it's important because in the passages that where Paul modifies it with the phrase of the law, he's addressing congregations that had a large Jewish uh, demographic. And so they were having problems with these uh, Judaizers, as they've been called, these Jews that were uh, teaching that you needed to add to the gospel circumcision and ritual observance and some of these other things. But in Ephesians, Paul is addressing a primarily Gentile congregation and telling them that uh, just like we Jews were saved at the beginning, you also have been saved by grace through faith, and we have now been made alive together in Christ, raised together, Jew and Gentile, and seated together in Christ, and we are a new uh, a new entity in God's plan uh, for history. And so when we come to this verse, it is, it is dealing with works of any kind and not just the works of the law. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." The problem, as we have seen contextually, is that we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins. So one of the first things we have to address is just this issue that we've addressed somewhat. I want to add a few things. What does it mean to be dead in our trespasses and sins? The solution is given in verses 4 through 9. We have studied 4 through 7, and now we're beginning 8 and 9. And then we will come to verse 10, which tells us the purpose uh, behind our salvation, God's purpose for our salvation. So the problem is that that's what we were before we were saved. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The phrase glory of God, as I have taught you many times, is an idiom for the essence of of God. His essence is glorious. And so the idiom of the glory of God speaks of his attributes and his essence. So we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's character, God's attributes, specifically his righteousness and his justice. So in Romans 3.10, Paul says there's none righteous. And in Job 14.4, we're told who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Only God can make us clean. We cannot do it ourselves. In Ephesians 2, 1, we're told you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What do we mean by spiritual death? Now, what you will hear from many people 
is the analogy with a physically dead person. You will hear people, I remember hearing this in my first year of seminary, I had a roommate who had gone to hear some Baptist revivalist and came back and told me this, and he was becoming swayed by it. And that is the idea that a corpse cannot see, a corpse cannot hear, a corpse cannot think. And therefore, before you can think or believe, you have to be first regenerated. This is a Calvinistic doctrine called that regeneration precedes faith. We're going to see why this doesn't work in this passage. It shows that that is a false idea. The idea that they define death is that death, a dead person can't do anything. But that is not how death is described in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.17, we read, looking at the, picking up the context in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that y'all should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And the word futility means vanity. It, it can't produce anything. It's, it's empty. Having their understanding darkened. So their mind is futile because of its thoughts. It can't get to heaven. They're thinking wrong things, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Having their understanding darkened. It's not blind. The word here is to be darkened so that it's difficult for the light to shine through. Not impossible. The next defines that problem. They are alienated from the life of God. That's why they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Not that they, uh, they're like a corpse. It's that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then in the last phrase, last clause, the King James, New King James translates it badly. It's a causal clause because of the blindness of their heart. But the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek word is not the word for blind. The Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, I keep saying Hebrew. The Greek word that is used there is the word uh, porosis. And porosis has the idea of being hardened. That's how it's translated, New American Standard, uh, Holman, uh, Christian uh, Standard Bible, many other translations translated as hardened because of the hardness of their heart. Now, the blindness does come about. And in order to catch this, we have to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I don't have a slide on this, so you'll need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is an important facet of this when we're trying to understand that spiritual death does not mean spiritual inability. That's how it is understood uh, by many. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, let's look at verse 3 for context. Paul says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds, remember their minds are uh, darkened over in Ephesians, um, was it Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it says that their uh, minds are they're, they're futile. So this verse is on the slide. Um, the, so whose minds the God of this age has blinded. 
the God of this age refers to Satan. He has blinded them. Now, that's why Ephesians 4.18 is wrong, because it translates that as blindness. It's a different word. The word that is used in verse 4 is tuflao, which is the word for a blind person, for being blinded. This just, the other word does not mean blinded. It means hardened. It is Satan who blinds the minds of those who do not believe. He does this by veiling their mind. But the light of the gospel can shine through any veil that Satan puts out there. If their mind is so dead as it is represented that it cannot understand the gospel, that it cannot uh, believe the gospel, cannot respond to the gospel, then Satan would not need to blind their minds. So between Ephesians 4.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.4, spiritual death does not mean that you're unable to do anything. It means that, that you are alienated from the life of God, and that's why the solution is that God makes you alive uh, together with him. So spiritual death is the separation from the life of God. It's not the sense of being separated. I mean, not the sense of spiritual corpse. In Ephesians 2.12, the passage we'll come to in a month or so, that at that time y'all were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So Gentiles before the cross were alienated from Israel. They were not dead. They were not non-existent. They were not corpses. They could do many things. They were just alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And so we have to understand Ephesians 2.8.9 in light of this whole context, starting off in verse 1, that he made us alive, or actually just says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Your trespasses and sins, meaning you were spiritually dead, and therefore alienated from the life of God, creating the need for this solution that we were made alive together with Christ. Now, one last point I want to make, and that is that at the end of verse 5, where we're told that the first thing God did for us was to make us alive together with Christ, it is further defined by the phrase, by grace you have been saved. That is in parenthesis in the New King James Version. Another way it can be uh, identified is through these M dashes. Either way, the phrase, by grace you have been saved, is further explaining what it means to be made alive together with him. And that means that being made alive together is the same as regeneration. And regeneration is the same as being saved. Now, that's important because in Ephesians 2.8, when it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, being saved through faith is being regenerated through faith and being made alive together through faith so that this salvation is through faith. It is a logical progression and is set forth as a specific order of events. Through faith means that faith must precede being made alive together. 
Faith must precede regeneration, just on the basis of the grammar. It is the phrase dia pistis in the Greek, which means through something. It is a genitive form of the noun, which means through, demonstrating the means of something. It is not stated as a cause. If it were a cause, he would use the, have to use the accusative form of the noun. So it is expressing the means. The means comes before the end. The end result is salvation. So faith must precede salvation on the basis of the grammar of this passage. We can illustrate it this way. We have a pipe through which water can flow. It has a valve on the pipe, and that is, I've labeled that the volition valve. We have to decide to believe or not believe something. So the faith pipe must first be opened for the water of life to throw to flow through the pipe to the person who is parched here, to the spiritually dead person. So he has to turn on the faith, the, turn the faith valve on, the water of life flows through, and he is made alive together with Christ. So in conclusion, what that means, being saved is the same as regeneration, being the same as being made alive together. So for by grace you have been made alive together with him. The that is the next issue, and I'm going to save that for next time. Come back and review this because this is important. It is something that is uh, challenged a lot. But we see the first stage here, and that is that faith must precede being made alive together. Next time we're going to see if that faith is what is described by the phrase and that not of yourselves. Is it that faith? Is it that grace? Is it that salvation? Or is it something else? That's where we'll start next time. Father, thank you for this time that we can understand what you have provided for us in our salvation. That it is a by grace through faith salvation that you have provided us a perfect salvation and we accept it only through faith. And it's not by works, it's not by ritual, it's not by good deeds, it's not by good thoughts. It is by trusting in what Christ did on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And when we have that faith in Christ, then through that faith, you regenerate us. You make us alive together with him, and we are no longer spiritually dead, but we are spiritually alive. We are made new creatures in Christ. Father, we pray that that would be clear to anyone listening today, anyone here, anyone online that does not clearly understand the gospel. Christ died for us. He bore in his own body on the tree our sins, that by faith in him we have everlasting life. That is the promise. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to all of us and then recognize that all of this is for the purpose that we might be displayed by God as trophies of his grace because he has given us 
more than we could ever ask or think as our possession as believers in Christ, those in his body. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.